0: Sal Barry and Tim Parrish. This is the Puck Junk Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and with me is Tim Parrish and Clemente Lisi. And today we are going to talk about the 2023 National Sports Collectors' convention that just took place last week and this past weekend. Gentlemen, how are you doing? You were both at the national with me a few of those days. How you feeling now? Start with you, Clemente, since you're the special special guest. The special special uh, guest host.
2: I'm I'm pretty happy but still a little tired. I think that hang the national hangover is still still there a little bit. Tim
0: I I'm, I'm tired. I'm still tired actually.
1: Yeah, because you had to get up early on Saturday to, like, uh, clean up all the debris that the storm had left around your house. I guess another tree fell or something.
0: Yeah, it wasn't our tree, though. It was a branch from another tree, another mystery tree from somewhere else.
1: I think there's a saying, if a tree falls in Lowell, Indiana, does it hit Tim's house?
0: <laughs> um, Well, we've gotten lucky so far. Lots of trees that were down, but none of them, none of them hit our house. In fact, there was one at the end of the block. The guy at the end of the block is uh he's like a car guy and he has a bunch of crazy cars including the general Lee and uh corvettes and all kinds of stuff uh-huh, and uh-huh. There's a million cars parked there his tree went down and it missed everything I well, couldn't that's
2: good. It. didn't that's hit good. a
0: thing that took me forever and then by the time I actually got out of here it was heck when did I even show up it was like 11 something And And you I must have been up.
1: cleaning for a few hours because you texted me like first thing in the morning and you're like Roofing shingles got ripped off of our roof. and Yeah,
0: our gutter was torn off. I mean, a there's... recycle
1: bin got slammed into the side of your house and cracked
0: yeah. the <laughs> Which also wasn't ours. It was somebody else's. My plan was to get up. I was going to go to the bank. I was going to go to get gas. You know, I was going to do all that stuff and then hit the road. And I had to do all that after. And by the time I do it after, now there's people at the gas station and there's people in the drive-thru, and there's people at the bank, and it's like, come on. But anyway, I, v- I eventually made it, so I was there a day and a half, I guess.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, you were there pretty long. You were there, like, 11, almost to, like, the end, like, 6. I think you left at around 5, so the first yeah. day, and then the second day, you were there pretty much the whole time. Right. And, Clemente, you were there, like, th- I remember you flew in on Thursday morning and then came, like, straight to the national
2: that's right. I, I, yeah, flew in from New York Thursday early morning, because you want to get those early flights because of the whole um, weather delays and all that. And then I get, I got right, I went right to the booth, and then I left Sunday kind of in the middle of the day. At that point, you know, I was out of money, and I was exhausted.
1: <laughs> I got there Wednesday because I set up to sell. So Wednesday, I got there around nine forty-five. And, you know, me and my friend that I set up with, we, like, unloaded his van, set everything up. I mean, it takes time. It takes time because you're unloading where basically, like, where we unloaded was across the hall. I mean, it was, like, you know, not, like, a super long walk, but we probably had to make, like, five or six trips each. I mean, it was... It was work i mean fortunately when we packed up they let him drive his van into the hall because by then a lot of people had already left and that's what everybody was doing so you know packing up was a little easier because he was able to drive in his van but like unpacking unloading and then setting up that takes a long time it takes a long time i mean you're not just setting up just putting out the stuff on your tables i mean arranging the cards in the case clemente as you see that takes time and effort. Setting up grid wall to hang the T-shirts. I mean, all these things that you do as a dealer. And it's funny because there's always a point where it's just like, ah, okay, I can't take this anymore. I'll just throw this aside and deal with it later. And then it either never gets dealt with or I find it a day later and go, oh, I should put that in the case. Or somebody says, do you have this thing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, let let me find where I threw it. Yeah, Wednesday I was there like pretty much like just before 10 a.m. to uh, I think the show went till 8. So we didn't get out of there till about 8.30, 8.45. And then, yeah, I mean, it's a longer day for dealers because we get there earlier, leave a little later. But, yeah, it's a grind. You guys said you had a hangover. Monday I felt hungover. I didn't do anything. I stayed home. I watched Netflix. I ate. And I just kind of puttered around my house in my pajamas like like I had a hangover minus the nausea and the alcohol, you know.
0: Monday morning I did have a hangover, but that's because I was drinking that night. So, But I went to work anyway, so there you go.
1: So I want to give a couple of quick shout-outs. A lot of people who stopped by my booth to say hi, maybe they bought some stuff, maybe they just hung out and chit-chatted for a while. So, uh, And, you know, some people I just got to say thanks to for their help and their support. So I want to give shout-outs to Scott, Frank, and Brian at AU Sports who let me set up with them. That's, That's huge. I want to thank Jeff, Paul, Sophia, and Troy at Upper Deck. I want to thank Chris and Karen at Niagara Falls Sports Cards. Aaron and Jeff Nowak at Slab Stocks. Jeff interviewed me for an interview that is on the Slab Stocks YouTube channel. I will send you a link to that. Which, by um, the way,
0: you didn't answer my question. When did that happen? We had to have wandered off.
2: Uh, that was Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. And you we're wandered off. Okay. Uh, you were buying stuff.
0: All right,
2: well. Tim, you're making the the deal deal of the show, the deal of the century.
0: The deal of the century? That was when that went down? Okay.
1: Maybe. I want to give a shout-out to Barry and Stefan at Check Out My Cards, Mark Petrie at Trees Collectibles, Greg McLaughlin at the Rebel Base Card Podcast. He has a podcast about Star Wars trading cards, but we'd always run into each other at various nationals, and he um, interviewed me for his podcast I will put a link to that in the notes as well. Greg was also giving out this really cool giveaway. It was a wax pack of nine custom Star Wars trading cards designed to look like old Star Wars cards. One pictures like one of the artists who did the artwork for the tops cards, and another one pictured like you and McGregor on stage at one of the Star Wars celebrations and like stuff like that. So, you know, here I'm giving away my little six-card set. He's giving away a nine-card set that came in a wax wrapper, really a printer paper, but still. A wrapper, came with a sticker, came with a few vintage cards just mixed in. It was a really cool giveaway. I want to thank Ted at BCW Supplies. I want to thank Jeff Owens, editor of Sports Collectors Digest. And then a few Puck Junk fans who dropped by, Sean Sullivan, Kevin Paulson, Andrew Chevrier, and then Lucas and Joe Pospisil who all came and, and said hi and hung out. And then there were like a bunch of other people who did too. And it's all just a blur. I think next year I'm going to have a guest book, like sign my guest book. Ever see that at like a wedding when people come in, they just so that I could thank people for dropping by. And then of course you guys came and hung out for a while and that really helped. Yeah, I was waiting for
0: that. Time. Where's our
1: thanks. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to thank Tim and Clemente for being on this podcast with me right now. And also, so like Tim made a couple of sales for me, like when I stepped away to go to the bathroom and then I came back, Tim's like, yeah, I sold some things. But then Clemente, this was funny because yeah. you looked at one of my display cases and you're like, "Sally, you're not maximizing your space here, let me do that. <laughs> I said, he, you said, give me everything you want to fit in this case. And it was just like, it was like a set of Topps hockey cards from 68, a set of Topps baseball cards, a bunch of little sets, some oversized cards, just kind of random stuff. And you like rearranged it so nicely. And then Tim said, dude, if, if three things sell from that, I'm gonna laugh. And then immediately, like 30 seconds later, a guy comes up and he's like, Hi, hey, I'd like to buy those two WHA hockey team sets of the Phoenix Roadrunners. Yep. And then at wow. the end of the show, I sold that oversized Patrick Kane card from that case. So actually I was
2: gonna, I was gonna ask you how, how that worked out, but now it sounds mm-hmm. like it did work out. So yeah, I'm yep. happy. I'm
1: happy. So, Sold a few things. I mean, nice. it didn't make me rich, but it got rid of
2: things. So that's exactly good. It makes room for other stuff in the future.
1: What do you guys want to talk about first? I mean, I have some notes, but I've been doing all the talking. So have at it. I mean, Clemente, you you came in on Thursday. So you kind of came in when the show was really ramping up. Because Wednesday, it was kind of slow. Now, it was slow, and yet it was busier than a Saturday at a typical national One of the dealers told me, he's like, I shot video of the 2015 National, and he's like, and this is busier on the Wednesday than on the Saturday. I I don't know if he was exaggerating, but I mean, this broke the record for the most visited National, and you came in right as it was heating up, literally and figuratively.
2: Let's talk about the fact that it was much larger than any National before. So I think people knew that and, and thought, okay, there's more space, so there'll be more, more people will come. The truth is it was not more space, there were more people, and you know, there were a lot of nooks and crannies and a lot of hidden places. And, and Tim knows that it took, you know, he came a second day. Basically, it was like going to a different card show on the other side of the building. So it was like a second card show. I will say I think Thursday and Friday were busier than Saturday. And I thought Saturday would be the busiest day. Now, Saturday, I saw more kids and more dads with kids and moms with kids. But I think a lot of people thought, let's preempt all this by coming on Thursday, coming on Friday. And I thought that it was really super crowded. And I was talking to dealers too, and they said they were, they were pretty happy. And you can tell because they were making deals with people. Uh, they were more open to making deals because they had made their money by Friday, I think, some of these guys. I think they made a lot of money. And then the weekend was gravy. But like I said, I think the location was ideal I think a lot of people drove in, which is easier to buy bigger stuff, that kind of thing. I mean, I flew in, so it was harder for me to buy bigger items or or more wax, for example. I don't want to carry all that stuff. But I thought it was impressive. I mean, I'm comparing it to last year in Atlantic City, and I think this totally blew that show out of the water, totally. Um, And I think it's probably the best card show I've ever been to in my life. I mean, it really was extraordinary. It was like a card show on steroids or like a national on steroids. It was really big. And I wonder in the future, whether it's that venue or somewhere else will they enlarge the square footage is it just going to work once i'm curious about that i mean it just shows the hobby isn't in a good place but i'm also really curious about is it sustainable long term will it get smaller i don't know what the footprint in cleveland is like so we'll see
0: well just to piggyback on what you're saying they announced that it was a record crowd so knowing what we already know of when the record crowd was and that was the anaheim show that means there was roughly a 100,000 people at the show from Wednesday to Sunday. So, there's a lot of people to shove in that place in a normal situation. But, like you said, they increased the square footage. There was almost 600,000 square feet of space.
1: Over 600,000.
0: <clears throat> so, you have the main show floor. And then you have those subsidiary areas where they would usually have at any given time, the autograph space or in recent years, the breakers pavilion and that kind of stuff. But then all the way on the other side, across the entryway on opposite of the escalators, there was a whole nother room that I didn't even know about until <laughs> the end after walking through the entire show floor. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I made it through here in half a day. Oh, wait, No, I didn't, because I was looking for other dealers and vendors and stuff. And I'm like, why aren't they here? I thought they were here. And sure enough, they were in the other room. So one day at the National is tough to go and see everything in a normal situation. One day at the National this year would have been impossible, like completely impossible because of the size. You're trying to wind your way through in and out, trying to figure out the layout. And even with the map, trying to figure out where everything is, it was... It was crazy. Couple that with 100,000 people shoved in there. Now, I was only there Saturday and Sunday. When I was there, I thought it was fairly busy on Saturday, especially towards the middle part of the day. I'm not saying Sunday was a ghost town by any means, because I think it was still fairly busy for a Sunday. Because most shows, any show, national or otherwise, is usually dead on a Sunday because people have already come and gone and dealers start to pack up early and all of that. And you had that here too, but there was still quite a bit of people there on Sunday. I mean, it was pretty good foot traffic, I thought.
1: One thing Um, I'll interject, Clemente, I'll agree with you. I feel like Friday was busier than Saturday. And looking just at my notes from the past two nationals that I've done as a seller, Friday was the busy day in 2021 sorry, the busiest day in 2021. And it was the busiest day in 2022, at least for me, as far as like number of people that bought stuff from me, those were my my high point days, right? Now, everybody's going to be different, you know, of course. And if, you know, if a dealer sells it, I don't have a $10,000 card, but I'll just give an example. If a dealer sells a $10,000 card on a Wednesday, that's going to be their best day, but not necessarily their busiest day. But like this show on Friday, and then the Fridays of the previous two nationals were always those days where like it would start at nine o'clock, or excuse me, nine thirty. And then I'd look up and the next thing it'd be like two o'clock and it would be like, oh, my God, I haven't gone to the bathroom. I haven't eaten. All I've done is just constantly like deal with people. I mean, as a dealer does, you know, you deal with the customers. And so it's like I didn't really get a break. So was Thursday busy? Yeah. Was Saturday busy? Yeah. Was Sunday busy? It wasn't as busy because I was able to slip away a few times. And well, like Friday, I think I did some purchases or excuse me, Saturday and Sunday. And as far as like the dealers packing up on Sunday, packing up early, I don't feel like they were packing up because it was slow. They were probably packing up because they probably had made a lot of money and said, you know what? I'm going to start packing at two o'clock. I don't want to wait till five o'clock. I want to get a three hour head start because I'm driving 14 hours to get home. So I think that was the reason. Whereas other times, like I've been at Chicago Sports Spectaculars where the show is slow. They had one on Father's Day weekend back in 2022. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And like Saturday by noon, it was dead. And like people were packing up. It was pretty sad. I would think the like show four.
0: promoters would have rules in their contract that say you can't pack up early.
1: Now, we were talking about that with the dealer. Remember, he was saying that they do tell you to not pack up early, but they don't really penalize you if you do.
0: Well, yeah, they. he was basically saying that they don't really enforce what's going on as they should. So who knows next year with the new under new management, maybe they will. Maybe they'll have a setup a little different. And he wasn't the only dealer because I know the dealer you're talking about. I talked to some other ones that said kind of the same thing about pack in and like load in and load out about how they were doing it in Atlantic City versus how they do it here, where it's Mm -hmm. more of a free for all. That sounds a lot more organized and makes a lot more sense for a show of this size, because if you have 700 vendors Mm -hmm. all trying to get out the same doors at the same time. That's not helping anybody at
1: all. There was uh, some uh, displeasure about the uh, temperature in the building. Imagine that, a bunch of card collectors congregating in a space and being hot. Kidding aside, they couldn't figure out the air conditioning because it was pretty freaking hot outside. It was like 90 or 100 degrees outside. So you had like, I don't want to see unseasonably warm because we do have heat waves in Chicago, But this has just been crazy hot everywhere in the country. And so it's like the air conditioning that might be used to like dealing with 80 or 90 degree weather is now dealing with 100 degree weather. You know, people coming in and out, out, the doors opening all the time, you know, hot air coming in and then more people in the space, more body heat. I mean, honestly, I was hot every day at the show except Sunday. Cause Sunday wasn't as crowded and it actually felt kind of cool. It was like comfortable. I'm like, ah, this is what the convention should feel like, where I kind of wish I maybe brought a light sweater or like a sweat jacket or something. You know what I mean? Like, Because, I mean, there have been shows that I've done in the summer where I've worn like jeans because it's cool. But this was not one of them. This was it, it was hot. People told me that my area was like the coolest area, not because I was standing there, but because just the, the ventilation was better or something. I don't know. What, what do you guys think?
2: Well, I'll say this, that last year at the National, the biggest technological snafu was the Wi-Fi. And then here, I would say, at least Thursday, Friday, it was the air conditioning because I think it was trying to compete with the number of people and the fact that it was 100 degrees outside. It was, it was your baking outside. And so, yeah, it was unpleasant. And there were parts of the building, like part of the corporate areas seemed very air conditioned. So I spent a lot of time there on those days. And then there were pockets where I just went and I disappeared. I, I thought, I can't stand here. It's unbearable. I really? did notice, yeah, there were parts, and Tim knows the parts that we went to on yeah. Sunday. It was, like
0: that those... on Sat- it was like that on Saturday. Right. Especially. So we
2: decided, like, not, and it's a shame because there were some good dealers there, but they got the short end of the stick there. I thought, and so I avoided those areas because it was crowded and it smelled. I'll be honest, and it was really hot. And I and I said, you know what? Let me avoid those areas. I did notice though on Saturday and Sunday, temperature did drop outside. So I think and there's a fewer people, which helps. But they brought in those fans that you bring in when there's a flood. Mm-hmm. They were they put they positioned those in those areas, and it was blowing a lot of cold air, and that helped. But of course, it was like seventy-five degrees, I think, on on Sunday outside or eighty. So it was way better. I don't think this show could have done the promoters could have done anything about it. I think they tried their best. You know, no, it's you're shoving the most
0: you're yeah, shoving the exactly. most people ever into yeah. this space. So I get you it. Know, something was bound to break and it did. So I heard people talking and apparently there were some issues with a few of the a few of the units, hmm. the AC units and they tried to get them fixed as quickly as they could and parts had to be ordered or something. And so the swap coolers were working overtime and everybody that's used to the way a swamp cooler works at some point or another, it eventually starts blowing humid air and it just is gross. So they can't handle everybody's hot breath all going at the same time. So
2: trust uh, me, what I was smelling was not breath. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, in my experience there and you guys were there longer than I was, but in my experience there, the main floor wasn't bad. I didn't really have an issue out on the main floor anywhere on the main floor, really. It He's was those extra areas. Yeah, yeah, it was those extra sections. And especially the section next to the breaker area. Yes. That was nuts. Like walking in there it was like a sauna. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how these dealers could take this. <laughs> like I was looking at a couple things. There was like one table where I he had like boxes of top loaders for like I don't know, a buck or whatever. And so I started flipping through because I found a hockey box. I got like down two rows and I'm like, I'm out. I gotta get <laughs> out of here. I can't stand here anymore. Yeah,
1: so Tim's like, I shouldn't be working up a sweat while I'm looking through cards. (laughs) Well, and that's exactly it.
0: Look, we all get demonized by the masses saying that we're a bunch of comic book nerds that just sweat and stink and don't wear deodorant and everything else. Okay, fine. I get it. But I don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because they can't get the heat and the air conditioning to function correctly.
1: You want to you know, earn those sweaty arms. Yeah,
0: if we're going to earn it, I want to work for it. I don't want to have to just stand there and instantly <laughs> melt. That's a little much. So, yeah, that wasn't pleasant. You know, social media, I know you you guys being there probably didn't have a lot of time to, to see what was being said and all of that kind of stuff. Social media blew up about that whole issue. Like, there were two issues. That was number one, was the heat. And maybe that deterred some people over the rest of the weekend. You know, you had the vast majority of people roll in Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then by Saturday. Yeah, the crowd was still fairly decent, but maybe some of those people were like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to tempt fate. But the second big thing that everybody was complaining about was everything was 10x comp prices. And that made me gag every time I saw that gag. Gag, gag, gag.
2: I don't know if that was true, though. What do you because, mean? Yeah, I mean, Everybody,
0: eggs? Everybody complaining about everybody's prices are too high. Hmm. And look, I've said this a million times, and I'll say it again. You can't put pricing into a unitary box. It's too difficult to generalize with statements like everything is overpriced. This is a card show, okay? This is not eBay. This is not shopping online. This is not Amazon. This is not any of that. There is overhead. There is cost. There is a lot that goes into this kind of stuff. And there's a much more nuanced interpretation of what is low pricing versus high pricing versus regular pricing. There just is. Your idea of comps is coming from some online auction marketplace that's easily manipulated as we all know and functions on a sell-by-ship symbiotic relationship amongst the buyer and the sellers. One seller's looking to move product He's incentivized by the last sale of the same product as motivation. And sure, that'll work out. But see, that's not how the real world works. And it forces undervaluation and sometimes overvaluation just based off of the perceived pressure to sell because of the marketplace. You go into a place, there's a dealer in front of you, a real life person. He has real life product. It's on the table. It's there. You can touch it. You can see it. You can smell it. You can taste it if you want, but I I wouldn't recommend that. Just it's there. You can take it with you. There's no shipping fees. There's no processing. There's none of that. But on the back end, guess what? That dealer he's got to pay for that spot. This is the national. He's got whatever space he's got. Chances are he's paying three to five thousand dollars for that spot because that's the general going rate. So right there they've got to make that money back somehow plus the cost of being there the cost of getting there there's a lot of things that go into it so for all the people that are like bitching and moaning and saying they can buy a card online for 20 bucks but it's 25 here or 30 here oh well you need to come down to 20 no i'm not going to come down to 20 because that price has no overhead costs, and there's more that goes into that than what's right here, and here's the card, and you can take it with you today. Boom. You want it? Take it. If not, go home and do your little online shopping.
2: Yeah, I agree and, with that. But the, the issue, I think, too, is that you know I feel like when I go to a card show, whether it's a small one, a big one, or the national, you're paying, in a way, for the interaction. You see the card in hand. You get it. You buy the card. You get it in that moment. You're not paying all these extra fees and everything else. I often think that eBay prices can be inflated, obviously. I don't really trust. I know people look at the comps and like, they think that's the guide, you know, like it's the old Beckett, but it's not necessarily the case. And it depends how badly you want the card. I know at the National, there was a lot of room for negotiation. Look, if you're trying to get like a Lionel Messi card or Shohei Otani, these guys are super hot right now because in their sport, they're at their peak and there's a lot of demand. Those cards were expensive. I saw one guy, he had Japanese baseball cards, which I thought was the coolest thing. And he had a Shohei Otani, like Japanese rookie card. It was $15,000. It was a PSA 10 card. Okay. That's too rich for my blood, but it was cool to see. And maybe he sold it. Maybe he didn't. And maybe it was inflated. I don't know. But that's a special realm. I know that the cards I was looking for, you know, I was making offers that were legit. And I was with him and he made offers on cards too. And they took those offers there was room for negotiation. And you can buy multiple cards. The people who think they should stay home and spend all day on eBay, that's great. But for example, even me as a traveler, or even you guys, I had to fly to Chicago. I had to stay in a hotel. I spent a lot of money, right? More money than I would have on eBay, but it's for the experience too. And so you have to pay for all those things, I think. And I think that's where things get lost a little bit. Otherwise, I you know go to your local card store and buy the card there or buy it on eBay and and you can be happy. And so, I agree
0: 100% because that's essentially what I'm saying. There's other things that go into this, there's way more that goes into this. When you get that comp sale and you look and things start to become hundreds or thousands of dollars and different between live pricing and what you found, obviously you should do your research. You should possibly, that's your chance for negotiation, right? Because you're that far apart in what you think it's worth and what they think it's worth. But if there's a few dollars difference in everything else and you're gonna sit there and flip through your phone for 10 minutes and go, Oh, the last one sold for blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, guess what? The last one sold for that. Now there's one less buyer for it. So guess what? price goes up. <laughs> I mean, that's right. that's the
1: reality. Well, both of you guys work in education or Tim, you worked as as a teacher. Clemente, you're a teacher, I'm a teacher. And there's a saying, which I'm probably going to mangle, but it goes something along like the lines like this, an anecdote is not data or the anecdote is not data. So because a card sells for, say, 50 bucks, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a $50 card. It means the card sold one time at $50. Now, if it sells a lot of times at $50, that's a trend, right? Or that's a pattern. But my question is this, if a card sells for $50 all day long, all day long, that means A lot of people want that card because it meets a certain demand. So why can't I sell mine for $60, right? It's kind of like, well, if they'll pay $50, they'll pay $60. Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes it backfires. I've tried that strategy before where I said, well, if it's sold for this, it'll sell for that. And it doesn't. And then I have to backpedal or I reduce the price or the guy says, would you take 50? And I go, sure. A lot of head games go into this whole card pricing thing. And I don't really like it. Cause like originally I'd priced my stuff at what I thought what was a fair price. And then people would always be like, oh, could you take $8 instead of $10? I'd be like, well, it's like a $14 card. And I thought ten dollars was fair, right? So it's like people enjoy that a little too much. And that's okay. So sometimes you gotta kind of like play the game with them. But I think that, like, if there's the demand for it, why can't I be the guy that says, you know what? It's not a $10 card. I think it's a $15 card. You know, like, without getting too specific into prices, Connor Bedard, I was buying and selling and wheeling and dealing with Connor Bedard cards all weekend. And every time I put a few out in the case, they would sell. And I know, like, one guy said to me, he said, oh, well, that's a $20 card on eBay. And I'd say, it might be, but... I sold three copies of that card for $30, and I wasn't pulling his leg. I was being serious. So if it's $20 on eBay, but I could sell it for $30, why would I match the eBay prices? I wouldn't, because I have overhead, and this is an in-demand card. And the guy was like, he was a young man, and then his dad said, that's okay, I'll buy it for you, because he was buying himself something, and he's like, that's ah, okay, I'll, I'll buy it for you. And you know, the son was like trying to explain to his dad, well, I could get it cheaper on eBay. And he's like, yeah, but you can have this right now. And there's no guarantee that you're going to win that auction because they weren't buy it now as they were auctions. And so he's right. looking at past auctions and saying, well, the past auctions, it went for $23. Why are you charging $30? And the dad's like, because $30, we, we have it right now.
0: See, that was a smart right. dad because he yeah. understands how economics work and- when the people that don't understand and think that everything should be sold at that last price. No, because we're not dealing with something that is within that realm of existence. We're not dealing with going to the store and you're buying a box of cereal where every box of cereal on the shelf is the same exact price. This isn't how that works. This is different. (laughs) And so you got to look at circumstance and you got to look at where you're at. I have no problem with people negotiating price. Right. I've done it. I did it over the weekend. I have no problem with that. Where I have the problem is when people make blanket statements like, "Oh, this show was horrible. It was everything was overpriced." That's ridiculous. And that was by far other than the heat, the second biggest complaint that I saw being Tussled about on social media throughout the whole entire week is how overpriced everything was and all I could think of was You know overpriced to who? Obviously, these are the people that sit in front of their computer screens or their phones all the time and that's all the shopping They do they don't do it in person. They don't go to a local card shop. They don't go to a show They're not dealing with like an actual marketplace where real people exchange real goods and services It's gotten to that point where it's just, you know, the gamblers, the flippers, the opportunists, they did their thing from 2019 to 2022, and they created this whole world. So now they're all mad that they have to live in the same world that they created. And I don't get it. So here's my take on this. So I didn't go to the national last year, but I know what I heard and I know what we talked about. But I did go to the national the year before, and that was still kind of COVID, right? So, we had all of that issue going on still, and we were stuck in that. And I remember at the end, because I was there Saturday, and even on Saturday, towards the end of the day, dealers seemed very, very interested in eliminating product and eliminating product quickly. You know, maybe not as much liquidation, but trying to get rid of stuff. This time around, even on Sunday, late in the day, I think most of the dealers seem less interested this time around in going after those rock bottom prices just to move things and more willing to sit on the product that they have and hold firm onto those prices just because they know where the market is going. And you can clearly see, based off of what we witnessed over those five days, that the hobby's pretty healthy. Yeah these big mega super cards that the one percenters can afford, yeah, those have taken a nosedive. But most of us that sit in that mushy middle, I think it's good. I think
2: we're in a good place. I totally agree. I also want to say I think that, yeah, the idea that some people like to haggle just to haggle, I think. And, like, I bought two cards that I was very happy with. I bought the Crosby and Ovechkin Rookies from the Upper Deck Victory set, and they were both priced at $30. That was a great deal and i said okay i'll take them 60 dollars." boom and of course the ovechkin alone goes for 50 or 60 on on ebay or 70 in some case i looked up afterwards i could have negotiated i bought two cards but the price was already low i thought it was fair and i thought let me make a deal and what I, I approached the national this way on thursday i didn't buy anything I like nothing i just walked around and i bought nothing and friday i decided okay here's a time to really spend some money And I did, and there was a little bit of negotiation, but I always negotiate when I know I'm going to buy two, three, four, five cards. And then I thought, okay, maybe we can make a deal here. But otherwise, I feel for the dealer in that case, even though I'm not a dealer. And maybe Sal can talk about people just want to haggle, I think, just for haggle's sake. I feel like people put prices for a reason. Now, that Ovechkin I mentioned, another booth had it for $225, okay? Jeez! Which is insane. For right. the victory, so, rookie. Right, and so I saw it for thirty, and I bought it, which was super cheap. And then two twenty five is like not even in the realm of reality. So what I did was when I saw it at two twenty five. I just walked away. I thought, and they had other hockey in the showcase. And I thought, if this is two twenty five, the rest of this stuff must be ridiculously priced too. So I walked away. And it, it wasn't was, graded. And it was not graded. Neither what? the ones I bought were not great either. So when you have seven hundred fifty booths, you have the choice. You can do that, right? And so the customer will, will will sort of adapt to that. The other thing I want to say is that I think if you're looking for a deal, then there were people setting up on the floor in the lobby and you can buy from those people on the floor. Yeah, like, what
0: was up with that? That
2: was weird. That was a Friday thing mostly. And then trade nights, you can tr- actually trade. Like I went to a trade night on a Friday. It was mostly soccer, but I had stuff to trade. I don't want to spend money there. I wanted to trade and I made some trades and it was cool because trading reminds me of when I was in grade school and high school when you traded for cards you know nobody actually spent money you know you just traded what you don't want for the stuff i want and so there's ways to do that without having to either a haggle or b spend ridiculous sums of money just get rid of what you don't want and get what you want and the trade nights there was a one on thursday night there were various ones on friday night and you know there was a lot of that going on too and there were people selling but i will say there were also fewer of those people with the metal cases running around selling to dealers i saw very few of those people there were some but very few compared to... Oh, case.
1: I saw lots of metal cases.
2: I mean, it's just... it's. I think he's know, talking more at the trade nights, the metal case people. Yeah, there. they're there. The oh. trade, on the show, I mean, like trying to sell to dealers aggressively. There was less of that than last year. Last year, that's all I saw in Atlantic City. It was ridiculous, really. I,
0: I feel like I saw more. But I was looking. I was actually looking for the people with the cases because I was making a mental note of everybody that had them. And two years ago, there were a lot of people that had them, but they were those people where they had all their grading cards and they were all the super-duper high-end ones. Yeah, all basketball it,
2: stuff, all the basketball, football stuff, right.
0: Yeah, this time it was all those people, plus all the kids had them.
2: Well, the kids had them. That blew my they, mind. I thought it was cool to have the case, but they weren't flippers. I, at least I don't think they were.
0: Little kids coming up to the table with them. Three cards in their case, and they're worth more than my entire collection in my house. It's
2: there
1: ridiculous. were a lot of people who tried to sell me cards. Some people I bought cards from, some people I traded cards with, um, some people I didn't buy from. I think what's kind of funny is that you have kids with good cards, but they're still kids. So they don't have the negotiation skills and they don't understand how business works. And when I Politely explain to them how these things work. I see the disappointment on their face, like slowly, like that realization. Because, like, I had a kid who who wanted to sell me a card. I don't remember what it was. We'll just say it was $200. Let's just say it was a $200 card. And I looked at it. I said, What do you want for this card? And he says, "Uh, $200. And I said, Okay. What do you think I could sell it for? Long pause. And then he says, $200. $200. I said, so I wouldn't be making money off of this. And then the kid said to me, I could go 195 And I said, so I would have to spend $195 to maybe make $5. He goes, well, it's comping at $200. I go, yes. I said, but the next card might only comp at $180 or $190. And then the person who buys it off of me, is going to want it for 190 or 180. I said, so I need room to work with. And then I say, generally speaking, I'll pay about, you know, 50% or more or less. I mean, it depends. If somebody says, here's a Gretzky rookie and I want a thousand for it, it's ungraded, and I go, okay, and I buy it, and then maybe I sell it, could sell it for twelve or thirteen hundred. Tying up a thousand dollars to make three hundred dollars, but that makes sense because it's something that's going to sell. A lot of times it's people who have a box of crap cards and they'll be like, I want $600 for this box. And it's like, I look at it and I say, buddy, I'd have to sell every card in this box to make my money back. Well, if you did, you'd make $800. I'd go, yes, but I'd have to sell every card in the box, right, so there's there's money that you put up and there's time. If somebody says, here's a card that you could sell for a hundred bucks and I only want 50 bucks for it, I only want 60 bucks for it, fine, done, right? It was like that last year, Kale McCarr. I'd buy a Kale McCarr card. I'd sell it an hour later. It was easy breezy. So these kids, these kids, these kids today, right? I, a typical old person speak. But I'd explain to them, I'd say, look, it cost me money to be here. There's an expense to sell at this show. There's an expense to transport these things here. Or they'd say, like, it's a $20 card, and I'd say, well, I can't give you $15 for it because someone is going to want to pay me $15 for it because it's a $20 card. So I'd explain it to them, and a lot of them would would get it. Some of them would even say, okay, I could do this much for the card, and we'd work something out. They're smart kids. They understand. They're learning on the job, basically. Kids
0: Um, should be forced to watch American Pickers because they would learn because they go into these places all the time, and you get all these guys that are like professional pickers. And they come in and they're like, oh, here's some signs from the 50s, blah, blah, blah. What do you want for this one? And the guy will say, 1500 And they'll be like, that's dead on retail. Right. Like, we can't pay dead on retail. We got to have something. Right. Because if I'm going to sell it for 1500 I got to get it for something less than that because of all the expenses. And there's got to be some meat on the bone. Right. And half the time with those professional guys, they don't do much. And it's usually only the guys that have two and three of everything. And they'll sell off the one that's not as nice. Right. You know, but they could still, you know, make a couple bucks on it. Those are the shows that these kids need to watch. So they see how this works. Because, you know, if you're going to pass it down to somebody that's going to sell it again, you're not going to get full amount for it. You want to go trade with your friends and trade dollar for dollar. That's easy to do, but you know, You're not going to get that from a reseller.
1: One thing I just want to mention really quick, and I hinted at this in the previous podcast, and I'll, I'll mention it now because the cat's out of the bag. So I said I was going to have a new t-shirt that I was going to unveil at the National. And I did, and it was a pretty good seller. I call it the Wrath of Comps. It's Captain Kirk from when he was yelling, Con! From Star Trek II. But he's yelling, "Comps" And he's holding an iPhone. And people saw that, and they cracked up, and they're like, oh, my God, that is perfect, right? So I'm going to put a link to where you can buy that. Uh, it'll be on the online shop, so there'll be a link below. The Wrath of Comps, available in sizes medium through 4XL. I was wearing that a couple days at the show, and people saw that, and they cracked up. And they're like, dude, that is a funny shirt. I'm like, I got them at my booth. Come buy one, you know, and, and some did. So uh, that was good, and then I gave away my set of... um Puck Junk, Bad Hockey Card, Hall of Fame trading cards. I still got a bunch left, so if you want a set, just reach out to me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can even email me, and I will send you a set for free. I don't even want postage or nothing. I just want to get it into your hands. So just want to throw those out there.
0: So speaking of kids, since we were talking about the subject of kids, I will say this. There were so many kids at this show. You know, being there Saturday and Sunday, I have never seen that many kids that appeared to be under the age of 18 at a national since probably my first one back in 93. There was tons. And the, fa- the amount of families where it was like husband, wife, and 2.3 kids. It was crazy. I saw people on Sunday pushing baby strollers and stuff. I, I was like, what? What is going on here? Normally when I refer to the proverbial kids, I'm talking anybody under the age of 35. I'm actually talking real kids here. You know, there were well, tons of families, multiple kids. There were gaggles of like teenagers walking around in groups. And I don't know if they were like moving in packs like wolves to try to like do something nefarious. But most of them were going from table to table looking, you know, to make deals and, and buy or trade and all of that kind of stuff. And, I guess it's not a surprise now that we know that attendance records were broken to see that there was that many younger people interested and actively engaged. But I think that was very promising, at least for me. I said it a minute ago, I think the hobby's strong, and that's something that leads me to believe that, especially if these are kids that are going to stick around.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that that thought, and, and it was nice to see. And maybe because the prices have come down a little bit, you know, I still think wax is very expensive for kids. I, I, I can't imagine kids are buying packs and opening them, but maybe they are. Maybe their parents are, maybe it's a gift or maybe they're buying single cards. I don't know, really know what they're doing. I mean, not all those kids had the silver cases. I mean, some of those did, but a lot of them were just happy to get a free pack of cards or to, you know, they're buying, you know, they, we should say too, there was a lot of Pokemon and other stuff like that too at this show. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. So, so a lot of kids are into that. Um, I know my son is, there's definitely interest there and we'll see how long it lasts. You know, we know that kids increasingly watch sports less, right? So that's one thing. We know that the hobby really is for a lot of people that are really in our age range because we have that nostalgia from our childhood. So I don't know how long it'll carry over, but it was, it's good to see families. And I, I can't tell, like... you know, I can't, I can't tell if it was dads dragging their kids. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I didn't notice a lot of kids that were dragging their parents. Yes. So.
0: Yeah, and one thing on that, kids consume sports differently. I don't think it's so much that they don't watch it anymore. They they're don't watching, consume it. They're the
2: watching same. Instagram videos. and they're Yeah, watching, like, they're
0: watching the, the highlights. They're watching recaps. They're watching. Sure. Recaps. They're right. watching. So, so, yeah, you could have a discussion with them about it, but you aren't going to be able to discuss, like, the intricacies of the various plays that took place in the middle of the, you know, innings on the baseball game or certain plays on – they third down on a football game yeah because they missed all that they didn't see those things right you know they saw the goals they saw the big hits they saw the touchdowns they saw all of that kind of stuff so they they're consuming differently that's my only concern about having that kind of background pushed into the hobby because in order for the collecting to be sustainable and I know it evolves I get it but like a sustainable collecting type environment needs to get away from that fantasy football style of collecting. You know what I mean? Where you're just targeting. And a lot of that is prospecting also where you're just trying to find the next big thing and you're targeting that and going after it. And then all of a sudden it doesn't pan out. So you're immediately a hundred percent out and you're off to something else. And I was kind of happy because I would go to tables where there were kids thumbing through boxes and a few like times on yeah. Yeah, and a few yeah. times on Sunday, I saw some kids looking at some stuff and I struck up a conversation, you know, like, oh, are you looking for anybody in particular? Because I'm looking for them in a box, too. And if I see it, I'll, you know, oh, you're looking for this one? And I'll hand it to them. And kids were like, yeah, I, I PC this guy. And it's like somebody I've never heard of. I'm like, oh, really? Why? And Oh, he's from my hometown. See, now that's awesome. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Because yeah, there's totally. a reason behind it. There's a story behind it. It's got some type of nostalgic connection. Yeah. Connection. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just, oh, who's the next Yankees prospect that's overpaid $180 billion that's still not in the MLB and his cards are worth $30,000.
1: Well, I think a lot of the kids picked it up from their parents when they, or their fathers, but maybe both parents when they got back into collecting in 2020 because everybody was home. People rediscovered their card collections. You know, it was something to do, something to pass the time. And I almost think it's kind of like, I'll give you kind of like a, an example that this kind of reminds me of and <clears throat> we're all of this age. Now, Tim, I know you're a musician, so you're going to have a skewed opinion anyways, but I think about like... When CDs replaced records and records became the thing of garage sales and they were thrown into the basement, put into crates or boxes, not looked at, sold at garage sales for a quarter or whatever. I mean, there were still people who bought records in the 90s, but it was harder because CDs were everywhere. Cassettes were still around. Records were really not around because the stores didn't want to make room for them. But then there became this whole movement of records and vinyl. I have students in their 20s who love vinyl and they they wax poetic about how great vinyl is. And I think about how much I didn't like vinyl. It was big. It was hard to take with you. It was a pain in the ass to get the needle on the record while it was spinning. I probably scratched a few records that way. It always make that pop sound and you jump. To me, there was nothing great about records, to me it was CDs because that was high tech and it made a rainbow and you shine a light on it, right? And then the, it would come with a little book, right? The record would come with the sleeve and yes, you'd have bigger artwork. The point I'm making though, was that you have this younger generation now who embraces vinyl and they even have embraced the cassette tape. And they say, you know, there's something really cool about this linear experience where you listen to an album and you don't just jump around to your favorite songs. You listen to the whole tape, right? Side A, side B, and it becomes this experience. Whereas, I mean, really, these kids have grown up with MP3s or whatever digital audio format. So they could kind of look back and see this different format and say, this is really cool. And I think maybe they're kind of drawn to trading cards in that same regard where it's a snapshot. They're so used to videos on YouTube or they could play a video game, and they could put themselves in the game and skate on a line with their favorite players. And, you know, a card is this tangible thing that they can hold, they can look at, and it has a limited amount of data on the back. It's a snapshot, right? This is a 1968 Gordy Howe card. It actually came out in 1968. I'll give you one quick example. I was selling at a Transformers toy convention, and this young man wanted to buy an original Optimus Prime from me. He wasn't like, oh, I want to reissue Optimus Prime. That's going to be a nicer shape. To him, a 1984 Optimus Prime was like what a Mickey Mantle baseball card would mean to maybe a young fan who's a Yankees fan, right? Before my time, but this is somebody that is part of the game, part of the history. I look up to him or my parents look up to him. So we're kind of getting that in like other collecting avenues and maybe that's why cards have become a popular thing whereas maybe the people 10 years or 20 years younger than us were just like yeah whatever I got video games that's better but now the people 30 years 40 years younger than us are like wow this is so unique
2: it's new to them but also i think maybe a lot of parents are trying to get their kids off of devices and the kids i did see at the show they weren't holding any phones in their hands they were really engulfed with the show. They were looking through boxes, they were talking to adults, they were hanging out with their parents. And that was nice. And so maybe that part of that is part of that experience. You know, in the piece I wrote for Puck Junk, I, I liken the National to a sporting event in that there was this bonding going on. And also there were athletes signing there and a lot of kids were getting pictures taken with with athletes that clearly they, they never saw play because they weren't even born yet when these guys were playing. So I think there was this multi-generational thing which is really nice. And You know, it's like when your dad took you to a baseball game or your grandfather took you to a baseball game. And that's going on today still. And I think the cards, the autographs, the memorabilia is that connection. Also, we should mention that the National, in a lot of ways, is like a museum. You can see stuff there that you can never own, obviously. I know that right behind uh, Sal's booth, that was, you know, Babe Ruth's Bat. Where are you going to see Babe Ruth's Bat? Nowhere, unless you go to Cooperstown. And so stuff like that is really cool. And so I think that a lot of kids want to see that. You know, even my kids have heard of Babe Ruth. He's an American legend. You know, he's a historical figure. And so the National does that, makes that connection happen too. And we should, we should point that out, I think is really important.
0: And that's something that I've always brought up too, is that's exactly what the National is. It's, it's a sports memorabilia museum. You know, even if you're not there to buy, you can see everything you pretty much would expect to see in a museum of whatever sport you're going to. It just so happens that going to the National, you could potentially own some of it, because most of it's for sale. You know, if you were going to build like a sports card museum or a sports memorabilia museum, I would say the vast majority of examples of things that you'd want to put in it, you will find on that show floor. And over the years, I've seen examples of most of the major things that have been discussed over the years as being... Key pieces of memorabilia. You mentioned Babe Ruth's bat. Or, was it last, two years ago, um, I think it was Memory Lane had a full uniform from Lou Gehrig. All of it. There's countless numbers of trophies and, and rings and jerseys and
2: equipment and just everything. You know, there's no shortage of any of it. We should point out, too, Tim, that we saw all the hockey hall of fame stuff um, they brought in some of the trophies on sunday that yeah it's crazy you know our trophy in... among others you know hey there's this
0: whole other room you didn't go to what well now i have to come back tomorrow and i come back tomorrow and we go over to that room and the hockey hall of fame is there with all the trophies minus the stanley cup just sitting there sitting there <laughs> what did i say i was going to do i was going to grabbed the heart trophy and I was gonna pick it up and (laughs) hold it over my head. I looked around like three times for security. I didn't see anybody.
2: Right. It was it was then I got
0: scared. I got scared and I didn't do it.
2: But I I did get the picture. Right. I think at the hockey hall of fame it's probably behind glass. We touched it. It was it was really cool. So yeah um, I mean it was awesome.
1: So there were a couple of hockey signers and actually this one just totally flew right by me. I didn't even know that that he was signing but Chance, the mascot from the Vegas Golden Knights, was signing an oversized five-by-seven card. And, you know, if Chance really cared, he would have made that his day with the cup. He would have brought the cup to the National Sports Convention as his day with the cup. And then you would have been able to see the Stanley Cup and also get Chance's autograph. Actually, I didn't even see that uh, advertised on Upper Deck's website. So, Upper Deck had a couple of autograph signings at their booth. Like I said, they had Chance, the Vegas Golden Knights mascot. Uh, they had wrestler Sky Blue. I don't know much about wrestling. I guess she's AEW.
2: They yeah, had they have their license. With. They have the license with them, yeah.
1: And then they had Joseph Wall, the goaltender for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he was also signing a 5 by 7 oversized card at the show, which, I mean, of course, he was super nice. Now, Tim, when you said you went there, there was a line. I'll just tell you about my experience. I went more towards the end. A couple of nice ladies from Montreal purchased some cards from me, and they said, oh, if you want to get Joseph Wall's autograph, he's signing at the Upper Deck EPAC booth. They go, the EPAC booth? They're like, yeah, not this one, the one in the other room. I said, okay, well, I better go because it's already like 12 o'clock, and he was signing for like an hour. So I hightail it over there. There's about 15 people in line. I get to the front of the line. One of the upper deck guys uh, that I know is like, hey, Sal, what's up here? Give me your phone. I'll take a picture. OK, cool. So I get my photo taken with Wall. He signs his card, his giant card. And as he's handing it to me, I'm like, do you want a T-shirt? He's like, yeah, that'd be cool. I'm like, I'll trade you this puck junk shirt for that autograph. And then a couple people around like were chuckling about that. But nice young man, you know, promising goaltender for the Leafs he was part of the world junior championship United States team that won gold I think about five years ago but I was really scratching my head like of all the players it's like who's the goalie on the Maple Leafs who's the third string goalie on the Maple Leafs yeah let's bring him to Chicago right mm-hmm. and it's not disrespectful to him it's just like it's seemed like a very unusual thing because they could have brought Alex Stalock perfect example Stalock had a hell of a season with the Blackhawks. I mean, he was pretty much like the number two goalie. And every time they put him in, he played lights out. In fact, I think they kind of benched him at the end because they're like, we want to get that first overall pick. And if we keep playing Alex Stalock we're not going to win. And by win, I mean lose. And I'm actually surprised he wasn't traded away because his trade value as a backup would have been worth a lot more. But that's just an example. Or like Connor Murphy or Seth Jones or, Andreas Anthony, see you like, a Blackhawk who had a decent season would have made more sense, but it doesn't matter. It
0: was still cool. He's an American-born player, and he's from Missouri. That's the only
2: connection I can think of.
1: Right, and Missouri's close enough. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, no, I wonder the same thing, and I thought, you know, Upper Deck has other players under contract. And I, I mentioned at the show to you guys, I'm like, they could have bought in, like, a Lafreniere. I know he's a New York guy, but... Try to bring in a bigger name, especially to make up for the fact that TriStar didn't really have any big hockey signers other than Yager, who's mm-hmm. charging a lot of money. And He signs at the Expo now in Toronto and he did the national last year, I think, or no, two years ago. I mean, he's been he's been it signing. was last
1: year, it yeah, was last. he's
2: signing more and more and more Yager. Um, and so, but it'd be nice to have. I mean, when you look at the offerings for basketball, baseball, football, and then you look at hockey, it's like it's Chicago, it's a huge nothing. market. There was nothing, and it was really – and like, Upper Deck couldn't make up for that, but really TriStar should. And if they brought Yager back, it makes me think that enough people were interested in, in him and in hockey. that They could have tried to bring in some Blackhawk legends. I mean, you see better hockey signers at the Spectacular than you did at the National. And I'm hoping with New Blood now running it, the guys who run the New York shows, I hope that they bring in some more hockey not just legends, but even maybe current players. I mean, it's ideal, given it's the off season. You could bring in current players, which is always ideal signers, as opposed to guys who played 30 years ago. That's the one thing I think for hockey collectors that's really missing at the National is, is good signers. Yeah,
0: well, That's something that I brought up maybe a show or so ago after Fanatics announced they were going to do those live events. Fanatics is basically ready to come in and just destroy everything you know i hope they don't but you know they're a juggernaut and they showed it at the show the fanatics live booth and that whole area was a crazy insane place that i wanted to stay away from every second
2: and all because every
0: time i'd walk anywhere near there i thought i was going to get hit with something or there was just a riot going on i mean it was crazy
2: all i kept thinking though was the fanatics people we're looking at this show and thinking, wait a minute. Like, if this is so popular and this is so big, we got to get a piece of this. And I, I envision Fanatics doing more like a Comic-Con type of traveling show. Well,
0: and that's, that's what exactly what they've talked about doing is modeling it more after a Comic-Con type thing. But think about this for a second. Fanatics is the official sponsor of pretty much all the major sports when it comes to apparel
1: mm-hmm.
0: and licensing. Other than trading card license for the NHL. The rest of it they have. They have the NHL license. They have the NHLPA agreement set up where they can make jerseys of players and all of that kind of stuff. They have all of that already. They also have the wing that is, who's the company that runs the, not the industry summit, but the uh, the Mint Collective.
2: They're going to take that over, right?
0: Well, yeah, they're taking it over. Well, they're combining with that other company, right, to sponsor all of those things. And that's the company that has all of these licensing agreements for appearances with all these entertainers and athletes and everything else. So, going forward, Fanatics starts to do a couple of these bigger shows, put these some of these bigger shows on, and we start to see that their autograph signer list is way more robust than what TriStar is getting, because, again, Fanatics is this big, TriStar's is this big. So if Fanatics is going to throw a bunch of money to get people to come over to them, what's going to stop them?
2: Well, and who's to say that in the future, Fanatics doesn't sponsor the Autograph Pavilion, right?
0: That's exactly it. We don't know yet, but there's all of those things are going through my head, thinking, yeah, the last few shows, TriStar, at least from a hockey standpoint, They've been starting to get kind of stale, and it's been the same people, and, you know, hockey, we don't have any representation, and it's like, okay, somebody else needs a shot at this.
1: Last year, I think, just off the top of my head, the hockey autograph signers at the National were Bobby Hull, Brian Leach, Bernie Perrant, Yarmir Yager, and maybe one other that I'm forgetting.
0: Was it it Chelios?
1: Now, it wasn't Chelios. Chelios was way back in 2019. Mm. So as far as 2022, I think there were only like four or five. And I I know that because I was trying to keep cards of those guys handy. Maybe Ray Bork. I don't quite remember, though. I want to say maybe Ray Bork. Maybe not. But, you know, there was only like five. And I think about like how many Rangers, Flyers, Devils, Penguins fans that I interacted with at the show.
0: You're talking the AC show,
1: right? Yeah, the AC show. Two years ago, I I want to say it was just Brett Hall, Bobby Hall, and one other, if I remember correct, maybe, maybe it was Chelios in 2021. Uh, I, I think we, we mentioned how it was all pretty much just pretty local. It was like Hall, Chelios, and Brett Hall. So, yeah, there's really been kind of a dearth of hockey autograph signers. I mean, the only other hockey autograph signer was Murray Bannerman, and You know, God love him, but he's done a lot of the Blackhawks conventions. He retired in 87, 88. So, I mean, he's from a long time ago. He did play in a couple of all-star games. He did have arguably the second best goalie mask in Blackhawks history after Ed Belfort's Eagle mask. Some might say that Murray Bannerman's Kabuki-style mask is a cooler mask. That doesn't matter, though. I mean, the thing is, is like, He's not the kind of player that somebody will say, oh, yeah, I remember him. I'll get his autograph. I'll give you like another, for instance, like who's like a player that we might get an autograph, like say like John Davidson. Okay, we love John Davidson because of his color commentary, but he was also like a solid goaltender in like the 70s and 80s. So if like JD was signing autographs in Chicago. I could see people in Chicago saying, oh, I want his autograph and people from the East Coast saying, I want his autograph, too. Or even like, say, Darren Pang. There's another perfect example. Darren Pang is working for the Blackhawks again. He played two seasons in the NHL, but he is one of the best color commentators in the sport of hockey. So people love Darren Pang because he's color guy or ringside reporter for the Blues and for the Coyotes and, um, I mean, in the past for the Blackhawks, of course, for a little bit before he moved on. So he's moved around and, like, people know who he is, you know, from the— was any on the TNT broadcasts? Yeah. I guess that's the thing is like it wouldn't have been that hard. They could have gotten like an Andrew Shaw or Patrick Sharp or, you know, maybe Duncan Keith, who just retired not too long ago. I mean, there are people outside of Chicago who'd be like, oh, yeah, Duncan Keith, great player. I'd like his autograph. It'd be a Chicago centric player that would have appeal to people outside of Chicago to hockey fans.
2: Well, is yeah. I
0: mean. you know, and that's was, why I question whether they can get these people.
2: Well, mm. right. Because the, I know, for example, like Lundquist is under contract with fanatics. So he'll do a show in New York and then they'll have the fanatics tablecloth and he'll charge a hundred dollars for flats or whatever. But he's never going to do TriStar, right? Never. And so we'll never right. see him out of the national. And so I wonder even next year in Cleveland, like what kind of hockey signers will you get in Cleveland? Maybe none. You know, I mean, it'll be, you know, it's you're not even really married to a market there.
1: They'll bring in Jill's Malosh, former Cleveland Baron.
2: Yeah, okay. But you, know, but, <laughs> but, you know, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, I think the time is ripe to bring in some of these guys who work as broadcasters, too, because people see them on TV. And maybe there's a chance to, like a Mark Messier, that guy should be signing. He should be signing, you know, but he doesn't, not really. And he was promoting a book a year ago, and he and he still wasn't doing that much. Yeah, I do.
0: I so, haven't seen Messier at the show regularly
2: in years. Right. Like, right. many years. Right. And so, you know, that connection to that that period of the 80s and 90s that we're very much married to, you don't see those guys signing, like a Gretzky, a Lemieux. These guys, they don't sign. They're not going to do that. I mean, the list was really sad, I thought. And that was the one thing for a hockey offering that, that was really, really bad. But, for example, they were bringing all these big basketball players like Karina Abdul-Jabbar, who was charging, I think, 750 for flats. And then they were
0: – Did you see how long he signed?
2: Yeah, he signed until He was seven- there for like 18
0: hours or so. Yeah,
2: well, well, he was there until 7 p.m. on uh, Friday because in addition to the fact that he was signing, if you're getting his rookie card signed, they were also grading it on the spot just eyeballing it and then upcharging you like another thousand dollars that's it i heard so it
0: was it, his wife was the uh no it
2: was some representative but i don't know if it was his wife but what what happened was every signing every person it was a 20 minute negotiation and some people were saying stuff like look i just bought the card out there it's a four i just cracked it i can show you the case it's not a seven like or an eight it's a four i just cracked it just to get it signed and this became a negotiation and I kind of witnessed part of it because I I had the media badge and I went over there and I kind of wanted to see what was going, what was the holdup? Because there was a guy next to me on Friday. He was number 11, right? Number 11. It took him two and a half hours just to get online because all the, all the VIPs went first and then it was like, what's going on up there? And so I hope that doesn't become the new norm with these big stars because look, if you're going to have PSA grading it on the spot, wonderful. But if it's going to be just like his wife or some agent, that's not going to fly. And I don't care if it's Kareem or Gretzky or whoever. People ultimately will sour on that. The lines said otherwise. He was there for two days. Lots of people were in line for him and spent lots of money. So. I did notice
0: he was signing his full name, too.
2: Oh, no. Well, you had to pay extra for Kareem. Otherwise, you just got Abdul-Jabbar.
0: Oh, you did? Because, yeah. yeah, he
2: usually only signs Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, I think you had to pay extra for Kareem. So. Uh.
0: I saw a bunch of people with Kareem, and I was like, wow, he's actually signing his full name file. Wow, they paid for that. They
1: paid wow. that. Of course wow. they did. You know you've made it when you can upcharge for your full name, not just your last name, but your full That's name. That's what I'm like...
0: going to start doing. I'm going to charge for my autograph, <laughs> and I'm going to say, if you want me to dot the I, it's an extra $50. If you want me to dot both eyes, it's an extra Ninety dollars. Okay, so I'll give a discount.
1: A little bit of a discount. You know, yeah. this whole rookie card upcharge thing has become a very disturbing trend because it. What used happened
0: to be- the whole if you sign a rookie
1: card, it's worth less?
2: Which is what we grew up with, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I That's didn't. We care. always thought growing up. When I got oh, yeah. stuff signed, when I, you know what, I got Dominic Hashek's ninety ninety one IHL Indianapolis Ice card, autographed by him, and I'm damn happy I did it. And I don't care what it's worth because it's worth more to me with that autograph. And I actually was probably the only kid at that event who had a Dominic Hashick card back then because I was that type of kid. But what I'm saying is one thing that bothers me is the athletes charge, you know, flat up to 16 by 20, right? The reason why I don't pay for most autographs or don't buy autographs is because I'm annoyed that it's going to be a little autograph on a card. It's like, Well, if you're going to charge me, let's say, 11 by 14, but you go, oh, that's a 16 by 20. I'm going to charge you more for an autograph on that. Well, how about charging me less for something smaller? Some players have started doing that. For example, Rowley Fingers, former Major League Baseball pitcher, I want to say his fee for signing a baseball card was like $30 or $35. So, it made sense, like if you say, oh, okay, well, it's 50 bucks if I get a photo sign, but only $35 if I get a card sign. And I really want to get his 85 Tops card sign because he has a cool curly mustache on on that card, right? And so I'd like to see more of that where they give you a special on cards. But there were some players that had the caveat like Mr. So-and-so will not sign more than five cards per person. So if you came up and bought five autograph tickets and said, I want these five cards signed, you know, they would maybe they'd limit you to four or whatever. But if it's a smaller autograph on a smaller thing, why not charge less? No, most of them charge the same. And now it's like, but if it's that specific card, we're going to charge you more because you have a stronger sentimental attachment to it.
2: It's not just that. So I think they want to try to Make money on a secondary market. They want to try to say, okay, you know what? If you resell that card, it's not worth it now because we so we charge you so much money. To sign a rookie card that's just not worth it. That's-,
1: that's absolutely right. And you know another thing that the promoters do is after the player is done signing for the fans who purchased a ticket, they have them sign stuff because they pay them for a couple hours of their time. So if they have leftover time, I mean, I sat there and I talked with the player. Actually, I stood there. And I talked with the player and when he was done signing for people, they just started shoving eight by tens under his nose. They even put like a little frame, like where they wanted to sign within this area, kind of like lining up the sweet spot of the photo. And then they'd line up all these pucks. I mean, I've gone behind the curtain before the curtain, you know, behind where the autograph guys sit and you go there and it's just tables and tables full of football helmets and basketballs and hockey pucks and hockey sticks and photos. I mean, it's
2: crazy. And so that's that's why it shows up in your email a month later that they have like, hey, get these autographs. They're for sale for Father's Day. You're like, wait, then the guy signed because you're right. He signed all this extra stuff as part of their time. Right.
1: So let's say you pay 50 bucks to get a puck signed. All right. You pay 50 bucks to get a puck signed. Then what they do is they get a bunch of pucks signed. And then they'll sell them for $25, $30. And you go, wait a minute. I paid $50 bucks to stand in line to get this puck signed. But now I could have bought one for $25. What the hell, right? And they do that. They undercut it because if you think you're going to turn around and sell that puck, well, guess what, buddy? They're going to sell that puck too. And they're going to sell it for less than what you paid for it. I found this out from a dealer who told me how these things work. But then, like I said, once I be- went behind the magic curtain and I saw for myself, and I saw, like, the players, like, after they did their signing, they'd go sit at a table, and they would just sign a bunch of stuff until their time was up. It's well, crazy. Part of
2: it too. I, I, I was talking about that with people online, and, you know, we were saying, hey, look, you know, if you go back two tables from the from the pavilion, you can probably buy that autograph for half the price. But I think a lot of people are willing to say, you know what, I'm paying $100 or $200, but I'm going to meet the guy even for 30 seconds. I'll shake his hand. I'll tell them, you know, you're my favorite quarterback or whatever. Right. And that means something to those people. And you're paying for the interaction. So when people say to me, oh, I met blah, 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 and he was so nice to me. I'm like, well, you paid him. Like, I hope <laughs> yeah. he was nice to he you. He wasn't
0: doing it out of the kindness like, of his heart. I
2: hope he was nice. And some some people were not so nice. I mean, there were some signers at the National. I'm not going to name them. They weren't even looking up at people. They weren't even saying hi. So I think those people kind of felt like, oh, wow, like, I'm paying you to sign my – Baseball, and you're not even really going to make small talk. Right. So that's part of it.
1: You know, one thing I want to just throw out really quick, just want to backtrack on something. So, this was the biggest show, national show, as far as like square footage. And it should be interesting to see what they do in 2024 in Cleveland. I'll tell you why I like the fact that it was a bigger show, not just because it gave Tim an excuse to come back for a second day, because there was a whole other half of the show or, or Third of the show that he didn't see the first time. But the thing is, is that when you have more people, you have to give them more stuff to do and you have to give them more room to do it in. And I'm gonna just give a quick example. The Chicago Blackhawks convention. The first year they had a Blackhawk convention, there were 5,000 people. And there was enough room to move around and everybody was able to do everything and it was cool, right? The second year they sold 7,500 tickets and it got a little crowded. The third year, they upped it to 10,000 tickets. So basically in a three-year span, they doubled how many people were allowed to come to the convention. The problem was was that they didn't increase anything else. It was still the same four rooms in the basement of the hotel that they were holding it at. One room was just for you to go get your passes, right? So once you were done in that room, you had no reason to go back in there. One room was full of interactive games like a Slapshot, radar gun thing and stuff like that nothing you could do to kill an hour one room was where they had all the autograph stages you know where you wait in line and one room was the dealer room which wasn't actually that much to buy because certain years they had like less dealers or they didn't really have that much variety and a lot of times it was like Four Seasons, Heating and Cooling, proud sponsor of the Chicago Blackhawks. And then there's the U.S. Marines recruitment table. And then there's the Chicago Shamrocks lacrosse team who has an information booth. Some of the things they had just weren't like the kind of things that you could kill an hour. It wasn't like going to a card show where you'd be like, oh, cool, there's a whole room of memorabilia. You'd Sounds have more ten... like
0: going to a Chamber of Commerce show.
1: It felt like that. So you'd have like, 10,000 people. Go get the gutter guard. I'm sure they were there, too, one year leaf guard or gutter guard. But I remember there would be people with nothing to do and they'd be all hanging out upstairs like in the hotel lobby and then you'd have people lining up to line up. They'd be like, oh, I'm here for the five o'clock thing. And it's like three o'clock. So they'd be lining up, but the line wouldn't officially start until five. So you had people waiting to wait. You know, oh, I really want to see this Second City improvisational comedy show about hockey. And that starts at eight o'clock, but I'm going to get in line at six because by seven, the room's going to be full and it doesn't even start until eight. So when you have that many people, you got to give them stuff to do and you got to give them space to do it in. And so I thought the National did that very well, where it was a crowded show. But it never felt like wall-to wall people. you know what I'm talking about at least like when I walked around, I never really felt like I was fighting my way through like a mosh pit like I have at like other nationals in the past.
0: Like I said, the fanatics area and the tops area, those are a madhouse.
1: okay. well, see I didn't I didn't get to go too far from my booth. The I further was, away you get
0: yeah. from the nucleus Corporate. of the main yeah. floor right yep, the more dispersed people were. Right. So, like the dealers that are around the edge, there were less people than you know. Middle. Think of it like concentric circles. The outer one was less populated. Then the next one was a little more people. Then so on and so forth until you got into the square dead middle. Now that back room across the hall, mm-hmm. even on Sunday, there were a ton of people
2: over there. I agree. The and the there was more space in the aisles compared to Atlantic City. The only problem was the floor plan wasn't necessarily a rectangle. It was this weird, like, it's a rectangle. And then all of a sudden, there was, like, this weird, like, hill. You had to, like, go into this other area. And so, it, you know, it took a while to figure out, especially when you made that turn and you went to the other areas. You know, I remember the first two days, I couldn't figure out if the Autograph Pavilion was, like, to my right or to my left because it was really confusing. And then I would just go through the lobbying the other way. I'm like, it's easier to do that, to leave the show and re-enter it because it was shorter than to go all the way around. I mean, by day four, you, you, you get an idea for the floor plan, but it wasn't, it wasn't a square or a rectangle, and that is easier when it's a grid uh, compared to when it's not. But, you know, if you're going to do the national in one day, it's almost impossible. This would have been totally impossible to do it even in two. I'm convinced in four, four out of five days I was there, I'm sure I missed a bunch of dealers on the edges, like Tim was saying. I used the edges basically to get through because mm-hmm. very few people traffic. So I was like, I can cut through here. It was like a, it was like the HOV lane or something. Like mm-hmm. just cut through to get to the middle, for example, on like on Friday, which was very busy. But well, you know, especially the
0: hot areas, uh, people just didn't go in them because they were too hot.
2: It was like the rings of Dante's Inferno and something. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's exactly what it was. That brings me to another thing too. That really hot area in the back was right next to the Breaker Pavilion. Yeah. <laughs> <It was>. so, <laughs> you must suffer look.
1: for your art.
0: No, no, no. Look, Breakers are still popular. I mean, they just are. They are. You can tell but by the crowds. Yeah. Walking through there multiple times. <sighs> here's the thing Fanatics Live, right? So that was the big thing going on on the show floor. And it's the main Fanatics stage Live. was there, the main stage and was there too. And they're broadcasting, and they're going to do box breaks, and they're going to do all that stuff, and they're controlling the narrative, and only their approved people can break, and all of this kind of stuff. So obviously, despite breaking being super popular, it's about to be overhauled. It really is. Because I think the whole Don West, P.T. Barnum, Crazy Eddie's, Carnival Barker attitude of these is running its course. People are sick of it, I think. And it's gonna have to change because I will tell you, two years ago when they had the Breaker Pavilion, it was nutso back there. People yelling and screaming, all kinds of stuff. I walked through the Breaker Pavilion multiple times Saturday and Sunday. It wasn't loud at all. No,
2: they weren't like, they weren't yelling and screaming. They weren't yeah, doing
0: that. No. None of that was going on. So I feel no, like even good. though it's still popular, I think it's I think we're in the subdued. middle of
2: shift. It was subdued. Yeah. The thing that was really annoying from that area was that they were breaking and then they were literally taking all the base cards and then throwing them out.
0: Yep, I saw that on, too.
2: Or they were putting them on tables and people,
0: people yep, were just, just grabbing them.
2: stuff. Yep. People were just grabbing. People were like, "Wait, you are going to throw this out?" It's like, "Yeah, well, we were yeah, all We don't do cards. anything with them." I was looking for three autographs and seven inserts, everything else is garbage. That was almost like like you said, you know, in terms of the Dante rings. And it's true in that way it felt like and that was a shame because they interspersed dealers with those that, in that pavilion. And some dealers there were good. But because they were commingled, mixed around with the breakers, I thought I was there the least amount of time over the four days for that reason.
0: Where I, I went back there was first thing in the morning when on it was empty Sunday right. when it, it was, was still fairly empty yeah. and not 100,000 degrees. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so yep. then I was able to go back there and actually walk around and enjoy myself for a few
1: minutes. Let's talk about some of the stuff that we bought. Clemente, you mentioned you bought some soccer and you bought an Ovechkin and, and Crosby rookie cards. Did you buy yeah. anything else?
2: Well, so you talked about autographs, and so I was kind of hungry for hockey autographs. And this one guy had basically like dollar boxes of all these autographs. A lot of them were really awful. But Tim saw them. but I did. But They were awful but i got a mike vernon pro set 1990-91 autograph really nicely done for one dollar i thought it was like hey this is the deal of the national and i like getting cards signed ttm often and some guys my only regret is i did not buy this card they had he had in the binder several yari curry autographed cards for 15 dollars, and yari curry doesn't really sign and i know that in the past when he did sign he often would purposely smudge the autograph in the mail or whatever Oof. he used to do so he he's on a sign, he's in finland now and he doesn't do it in the mail i i've sent to him and so for 15 dollars, i probably should have pulled the trigger on one of those cards now that we don't know if they're authenticated or not they're there's no sticker or anything so you buy them at your own risk in that way right but there, but there were a lot of cards in there that you know how to be real because Who's going to go and, like, fake a Phil Bork yeah. autograph? I mean, nobody. You know, why would you do that, you know? I'm why would you guy.
1: do that, Tim? Why would you fake <laughs> Phil Bork's autograph, Tim? Right.
0: I wouldn't, because the old 2-9 are signs. So. Yeah, does, I mean, sign.
1: That's true. I remember seeing Phil Bork at a, was a Chicago Wolves preseason game, and he was going to make the team. So he's sitting up in the stands with the fans, and he was wearing, a, like, a double-breasted suit jacket, looked very sharp. And, like, people were going up and getting his autograph. I got a bunch of cards signed from him that day. This had to be, like, 96 or whatever. So, yeah, no one's going to forge his autograph because they don't have to.
0: Yeah, and he's also very fan-friendly. He's a great guy.
2: Yeah, no, so there were little pockets like that where I was looking to pick up sort of, like, these cheapy cards, you know, nothing not, nothing high-priced. And, and there was a lot of that, and it I was refreshing to see at the national like dollar hockey boxes or quarter hockey boxes that you don't normally see. You see them at the expo, obviously, but you don't see those at the national. I mean, if you're in for baseball, then you have overabundance of choices. But when you're doing hockey or soccer or some other stuff, it's a much smaller subset. And unfortunately, it's all spread out. So you have to really go all over the place to look for hockey as opposed to like, hey, let's put all the hockey guys in this one corner. That might be nice. No, it wouldn't. I'd hate that. It's very territorial. Yeah, we have competition. You had a great location. You would walk in the main entrance, make a turn, and your booth was like right there. And I think a lot of hockey people were coming to us to you because they saw there was hockey there and that was cool. I don't think there was any other hockey dealers that were that sort of out there. Some people had multi sport, they had baseball, basketball, football, hockey. So they had hockey as one showcase as opposed to just being exclusive hockey. In that case, you, I think you had cornered the market. But um, other than that, I didn't pick up any other stuff, but I did spend a lot of time on hockey and soccer. And for the first time, I didn't really buy any baseball, frankly, because the stuff I was interested in baseball-wise was just too expensive. It was too pricey. The modern stuff was pricey. And the vintage stuff was pricey, because now everyone's figured out in baseball, hey, you should buy vintage because it turns out that, uh, you know, Roger Maris can't get arrested for DWI or something. So, right. you, know, you, know, <laughs> so you know, so they, they, people are gravitating towards that stuff. I like Otani. I like his stuff. I like him as a player, but I couldn't even touch his stuff because it was so ridiculous. And it was all graded, of course, because maximized value.
0: And go figure, all the big influencers have suddenly changed their tune about ultra modern. And they're all talking about going after vintage now.
2: Right. Because, because of what happened the- to John Morant and Tatis <laughs> and all these guys, whether they've been injured or arrested or whatever, they realized, wow, was it really worth paying 30K for a John Morant card? The guy's like two years in the league, he hasn't won anything yet, and blah 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 and stuff. every big
0: show i've ever been to vintage is front and center it's always right in the front because the guys right. that have the prime locations they're the ones that sell vintage because they've been doing it for years and years and years Second. so you see it first and then once you get past that you get into the mix of everything but there was so much vintage i mean it was deep like we talk about the oh, yeah. concentric rings
2: oh yeah uh, vintage was at least five rings in tim you should talk about you've had some vintage hockey pickups I did. I was there I had, for that. So. I had a couple.
0: Yeah. So one of the tables in, in the uh the back part of Dante's Inferno <laughs> earlier on. Ring. The outer ring. Yeah, the outer ring. Uh early on on Sunday, I f- happened to be walking around the edge and I out of the corner of my eye, I see two two cases, uh two glass cases of older vintage hockey and Kind of looked through there. A lot of it was graded, but there were stacks of individual cards. And I had them come over and got to look through them and see what was in there. And there were quite a few really nice-looking pieces at pretty decent prices. So one of my goals was to pick up some vintage hockey while I was there. And I was able to get a uh, a 63 Parker's Gordie Howe that's in nice shape. As well as a couple other from that set. I got uh King Clancy and Bill Gadsby from that set. So all Hall of Famers. And then I was also able to get a 6061 Parkhurst, Marcel Pronovo, and a 5960 Parkhurst, Dickie Moore. And what was the other one? Oh, it was a Harry Howell. It was a Topps. Uh what year was that? This is the sideways one with the Yellow box, red box, blue box, white
1: 60, box. 61.
0: 60 okay. So, yeah. So, I was able to get the whole kit and caboodle for pretty cheap, the whole pile. And they're all in pretty decent shape. I mean, I'm not going to send these off for grading or anything. But still, it was pretty cool to seek out vintage and actually be able to buy something, A, not slabbed, and B, in nice shape. Because you don't see that
1: very often. I bought a couple boxes of extended series. I wanted to get the redemption packs from Upper Deck. And I was kind of grumbling about the fact that back in the day, and this could have even been four or five years ago, it'd be like, buy four packs or six packs, open them at our booth and get a redemption pack. Now it's buy a full box to get one redemption pack. I remember one year it was like, if you buy four packs of SP Authentic and open them at the Upper Deck booth, they would give you a redemption pack and they would limit you to five packs a day. So basically, if you bought a whole box of SP Authentic, opened it at their booth, they would or I think maybe they would just slash the, the cellophane on it, then you would get like five redemption packs. So it was it was better. I know SPA is a more expensive product. But the point is, is now it was just like buy a box and get one pack with like three or four cards, and it might have an autograph. But I got two redemption packs, didn't get any autographs. You know, the best I got was a Maddie Beneers top shelf rookie.
0: I, too, got two redemption packs because I got two boxes, but I got a box of extended and a box of series two,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which I haven't opened the series two box yet. But, yeah, so I got two redemption packs, and I actually pulled no autos, too. So, there you go. I think, what was it? What was in there? Um, The Prominent Cuts cards. I got a couple wrestlers, I believe. I got uh, MJF and uh, what's her name? Dr. Britt Baker. Yes. Who's from Pittsburgh? Okay. Just a fun fact. And I don't know what she's a doctor of. I think she might be a dentist. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, there were two wrestling cards in there. (laughs) I think I got the Connor McDavid prominent cuts and maybe Gretzky. And then the rest were the rookie ones. So, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of kind disappointing because they cut way back on the free ones. But it's okay. I did find, though, other than, like, quarter box, you know, getting penguins and stuff to fill in my team sets and all of those kind of things and some hall of famers and stuff like that. I found a, another box too, that I bought because I was going for some older wax. It was another one of my goals is to see if I could find some older wax. And sure enough, Clemente was with me too on this one. We just happened by a table and I caught out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, Whoa, there's an Oh two Oh three box of upper deck series two. And I'm thinking, okay, which one was in this one? Was this the Tim Thomas one or was this the Zetterberg one? And then I remembered Zetterberg was in Series 1, Tim Thomas is in Series 2, along with Jason Spezza and Brian Miller. So I was like, hmm, I wonder what this guy wants for it. And it was 60 bucks for this box. So I was like, I'm not going to pass that up. So I snagged that. So that should be a fun to open.
2: Uh, hopefully, yeah. it's not bricked. Hopefully, not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hopefully, it it's words, not bricked. It took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll see.
1: I bought some vintage cards, and you know, I again, I didn't really have the time to look around. I know that like somebody came to my table, and they had two tops Tallboy cards that I bought off of them, that were in pretty decent shape. One of them is of Red Kelly, who's in the Hall of Fame. And so I'm like, all right, you know what? When you find tall boys in like decent condition and they're not like $30 each, go for it. I grabbed those. I know, Tim, you showed me that dealer that you bought the Gordy Howe from. I picked up a couple of 63, 64 Parkhurst cards. I'm like less than 20 cards away from finishing that set now. I mean, I got Henri Richard and uh, Johnny Bauer and Jean Beliveau. I also picked up some 6061 Tops cards. That's another slow build, 66 cards. But I picked up cards of Eddie Shore, Joe Malone, and Lester Patrick. And even though those guys played in like the 20s and 30s, the 6061 set had cards of all-time greats.
0: All-time basically. greats, yeah. yeah.
1: It says that at the top, all-time greats. So, you know, these were kind of cool cards. I saw that. I'm like, wow, you know, hey, Lester Patrick, Eddie Shore, Joe Malone, right? But my big score was tim you found this guy that had these really old hockey cards yep and you were like you should check this out and i did we did we looked at it and then i went back the next day and bought yeah
0: this this was one of those ones where he had the cases of hockey cards and i'm looking at him he's like oh you like hockey cards huh i'm like yeah and i'm kind of browsing and he's like well i got something back here you might like And, of course, when people say that to me, I immediately put an eyebrow up like, where are you you going with this man? Mm -hmm. And he pulls out the stack
1: that he had hidden behind the table that is now your stack. You know, I told you I bought some cards from 64, 65, 63, 64 and 60, 61. So then I bought this lot of 27 cards in this lot. There were six cards from 1933-34 Opeechee, 1933-34 Canadian Gum, 1933-34 Worldwide Gum Ice Kings, and four cards from 1912-13 Imperial Tobacco. So most of the cards were from 1933-34. And then four of them were from 12-13. Now, I'm going to just tell you the rookie cards of the Hall of Famers that I got. Because I'm not going to read out all 27 cards because many people won't know some of these players. But I will just read to you who I got. Uh, Rookie cards of Bill Cook, Hall of Fame. Cooney Wayland, Hall of Fame. I got two different rookie cards of Harvey Busher Jackson, who's in the Hall of Fame. They're all in the Hall of Fame. Mervyn Red Dutton, who was on the New York Americans, obviously in the Hall of Fame. Lionel Conacher, one of the all-time great Chicago Blackhawks. And Charlie Chuck Gardner, probably the first superstar goalie that the Blackhawks had. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame. He was on the team when they won the Stanley Cup in 34. Those were all, like, really awesome cards. But probably the one that I'm, like, the most geeked about most geeked about is the 1912-13 Imperial Tobacco C57 card of Clint Benedict. And I will tell you why this card is so freaking awesome. Yes, he's in the Hall of Fame. He is the first goalie to wear a mask. He didn't wear it long. He wore it. We had like a facial fracture. I think it was maybe a broken nose. He wore like this leather mask that covered like the bottom half of his face. Kind of creepy looking but kind of cool. So he's the first goalie to wear a mask in an NHL game. However, he would fall down to stop the puck and that wasn't allowed in the NHL for a bit in the league's history it was allowed in other leagues. Wasn't allowed in the NHL. He would drop to his knees and he was given the nickname praying Benny. And you know if he fell and made the save and they they said it was you know oh you meant to you meant to fall they'd give him a 2 minute penalty and shrug it off all right fine but i made the save but a lot of times he would claim that he fell accidentally sometimes the referees couldn't tell so finally frank calder the president of the NHL at the time finally said okay you know what screw it goalies can fall down to make saves they could do it in other leagues sure they could do it in the NHL as well and He made the comment, I'm going to pull the direct quote right here. This is from the book, Saving Face, The Art and History of the Goalie Mask. And so Frank Calder, he says here, NHL referees couldn't tell the difference, but some hockey purists could and derided the practice. This is a falling on your knees to make a save. On January 9th, 1918, unable to stomach the blatant rule infringement any longer, NHL president Frank Calder simply Dropped the rule itself. And he said, in the future, they can fall on their knees or stand on their heads if they think they can stop the puck better in that way than by standing on their feet. And this is believed to be the origin of the saying, standing on their head, when a player has a good game, specifically a goalie has a good game or a great game. He's standing on his head, right? So, That is thanks to Clint Benedict. And so you kids can keep your PSA 10 Connor McDavid's and I will be happy with my PSA 2 Clint Benedict rookie card.
0: I mean, what more do you need than that? Well said. Every card has a story and there you go. There's a story with that one. That's the whole reason why. Because I saw all of those and I immediately was like, yeah, Sal has to come see this table. I'm just glad he still had them.
1: You don't see stuff like this every day. And I mean, I look through this and I mean, you know, I have like four or five rookie cards of players on the first Blackhawks Stanley Cup team.
0: I mean, like I said, I go back to the point I made earlier. Stuff that gets this old, you don't see it not slabbed anymore. You don't find this stuff raw anymore because everybody that had it has gotten it put in some kind of case. Finding this stuff that's like you could still pick it up and touch it is awesome.
1: So as I mentioned before, the 2024 show is going to be in Cleveland. The 2025 National will return to Chicago. The 2026 show, it's up in the air. There's actually been a rumor that I'll help perpetuate that it'll be back in Chicago in 2026. So two years in a row in Chicago. Will that really happen? I don't know. I mean, you know, there's Atlantic City, there's Baltimore, there's a lot of places that have hosted the National in the past and we will probably... Hosted again, but
0: yeah, it's down to three places. It's either Chicago, Atlantic City, or Atlanta. So it's going to be one of those places.
1: Don't want Atlanta.
0: I think a lot of people actually do want Atlanta
1: (laughs) because it's never been down, it hasn't been down there in like forever.
0: It's been a while, yeah. I think they've hosted two times or three times before, but it hasn't been down there in quite a few years. So I know the popular choice seems to be not Atlantic City. Anything but at Lake City, but I guess the convention center there has been uh, lobbying pretty hard, including offering to knock money off of dealer tables. So I guess we'll see once the votes are tallied.
1: Well, any final thoughts, gentlemen? Because this show has been almost as long as the national itself, or so it <laughs> feels like it.
0: Well, I can wrap up by saying this is probably the most fun I've ever had at a national. And this was my ninth or tenth. So that's saying something. And that's because you
1: didn't bring the wife and kids this time?
0: No. It has nothing to do with that.
1: Because you had more than a day?
0: Um, no, it's just
1: Not I got to hang I, out with your friends.
0: I enjoyed it. I I had a lot of fun. I got to see a lot of cool stuff. I got to talk to a lot of cool people. I mean, it was just it was fun.
2: No, I agree with Tim that it was probably the most fun I ever had at any card show. And I hope that we haven't reached peak national that we, you know, we can't surpass this, you know, I hope we can because it would be great to do so. I agree also that bringing it back to Atlantic city would not do that. So, well, we shall see. I mean, and for selfish reasons, I probably want AC because I'm, I'm in New York and it's closer to get to, but in a lot of ways, taking a bus down to Atlantic city to a venue that's not so great as opposed to flying two and a half hours and being in a place that is very conducive to the national with hotels and restaurants and the airport is literally three minutes away. It's hard to beat, but we'll see. But having said that, I think, you know, um, the national hangover will last for me, I think a little longer and hopefully I can rest off this week and, uh, be ready and fit for uh, future card shows.
1: Well, all right, then. Uh, I think we've uh, said everything that needs to be said, so we had a good time. And if you went to the National and want to share your thoughts, reach out to us on social media or on the Facebook group. And until next time, collect what you like.
0: For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at
2: PuckJunk.